Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today two of the three authors of a really cool book titled Creative Histories of Witchcraft, France from 1790 to 1940, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022, which packs a lot into quite a concise book, um, specifically 13 tools for doing research into magic in a way that combines academic historical methods and creative methods, specifically poetry and playwriting. Um, So unsurprisingly, to bring all of this together, uh, three different experts were needed. So the book is written by Dr. Poppy Corbett, uh, Anna Kisby Compton, and Dr. Will Pooley. And I have Poppy and Will with me today to take us through this really interesting exploration. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Miranda. Yeah, thanks for having us. Before we get into all things creative witchcraft, um, would you please introduce yourselves a bit and explain why this book and why together? Um, Will, if you maybe want to start us off. Yeah, sure. Thanks very much. So, yeah, um, I'm I'm a historian of France, or have been a historian of France for a little while, and um, I have been thinking about witchcraft um, for quite a while. It'll be coming up for kind of a decade, actually, next year that I've been thinking about some of this material. But I've also um, spent a lot of time thinking about different ways of doing history, um, and I've been very influenced by um, people who are doing yeah, who are doing history in unusual and surprising ways, whether that is creative writing or graphic novels or theatre. Um, uh, and so back in 2018, I was um, applying for money, uh, research funding. And the thing that I applied for was I want to get some time uh, to spend with a 
poet and a playwright and just think about this witchcraft material that I've been researching, but think about ways that a poet or a playwright might treat it and how they kind of intersect with what a historian might want to do. So I got the funding and I put out an advert um, for a poet and a playwright. And unsurprisingly, we got a lot, <laughs> a lot of people applied for it. And I was really, really pleased um, to end up with um, Poppy and Anna coming onto the project at the start of 2019. Brilliant. Poppy, what brought you to this? Um, so uh, I am a playwright and an academic researcher and a creative writing teacher. And uh, the project just looked really exciting. I've always been interested um, in witchcraft in general. And um, I've developed sort of a an interest in, in terms of my playwriting work of working with history and archives. And um, it just seemed like a really lovely opportunity to spend a whole year just working on my playwriting and thinking in collaboration with um, other people about um, how history uh, can be creative. And um, as I'm a theatre person, I'm really um, interested in collaborative working anyway. And so a big draw of the project for me was that chance to work collaboratively with a poet and with a historian. Yeah, I can see why a lot of people applied to that proposal. Um, Will, as you were the one, obviously, that created the proposal, can you walk us through um, why you thought poetry and playwriting in particular would add to existing kind of traditional historical methods? Yeah, so... I mean, one thing to say about this right from the start is that I feel that, you know, people people have been talking about all of the different ways that we can do history for a long time. You know, this isn't a kind of new conversation. Um, you know, might say in a sense that as long as there have been histories, there have been people who are kind of pushing at the generic boundaries and trying to think about um, other ways of representing the past. But it does seem to me that um, the conversations that that we tend to have or, or have tended to have in the last few decades have really focused on one particular intersection, which is the intersection of the novel um, and history. And, you know, you can find a lot of stuff out there about people thinking about historical fiction and history writing. And, you know, um, I'm a, I myself, I'm a big admirer of the, the late, great um, Hilary Mantel. You know, there, there are lots of people out there who did really intense and interesting thinking about that. And one of the things that I wanted when I was like designing this project, I wanted to explore some areas where I felt that there wasn't as much high profile kind of work being done, you know, um, where where perhaps we needed more conversation about the relationship between these creative forms and more kind of traditional academic nonfiction writing, writing techniques. Um, so I thought, poetry and playwriting were really interesting from that point of view because they're not they're just they're not the obvious forms of writing or, or practice that I think a lot of historians think of when they when they think of um, you know other ways of doing histories um, and then the other thing that I you know I think I found important and it was I think it's a thread that really runs through the project and I think Poppy and I will probably talk about it a bit today is that um, neither poetry nor playwriting have to be fictional 
Um, and I do, one of the things that I know irritates me quite a lot about the ways that people sometimes respond to this work is that they assume that because we are interested in different forms of history, different kind of creative approaches to his, history making, that we're therefore interested just in making things up. Now, we can talk about some of the things that we did, you know, we, we did do some of that on the project, imagining, like, uh, even inventing or, or, you know, fabulating, um, making fiction, but it's not... It's not everything about what we did. And so uh, I was really interested, Poppy will, will no doubt talk about some of the kind of playwriting traditions that are, um, you know, that are documentary or non-fictional, but I was really interested in that tradition in poetry of work that takes real things from the past and, and you know, represents them um, as poetry, you know, that uses the words of the past, for instance, to um, as the materials for poetry. Um, so there was there was all those things going on. I mean, and the final thing I think I'll say before I hand over to to Poppy to talk a little bit about playwriting, which she know, obviously knows a lot more about um, than I do, is that for me, uh, poetry. Although I think in the project I actually said poetry or short form writing, so I was open to I was open to people who did writing that they didn't necessarily categorise as as poetic, but but were interested in short form writing. I think there's a special like there's a special interest in those kind of short forms because they are associated with magic you know there is there is uh, there is some kind of like power to short form writing um and especially short form poetry because i know that not all poetry is short short but but that in itself seems a really important part of the project you know that words words have power especially when they're um kind of condensed like that so those were some of the things i think that were going on um uh, behind the idea to particularly be interested in poetry and playwriting. But Poppy will probably say a bit more about playwriting. Uh, yeah, so um, something that sort of came out of my PhD uh, thesis was um, my interest in theatre of the real um, in general, uh, which is a phrase coined by the scholar Carol Martin. And um, so I've I've kind of always been interested in verbatim theatre, documentary theatre, autobiographical theatre. And what I'm most interested in is how uh, theatre practitioners go about uh, constructing uh, the real on stage or uh, what is taken to be the real on stage. And so my interest in... Um, kind of historical playwriting uh, is connected to that Um, but I often find that when people think about historical plays that's it kind of sounds can sound a bit boring and sometimes is a bit boring and so one of the things about this project was um, Will was very open to um, to all different kind of ways of thinking about playwriting and and history um sort of beyond the traditional um just taking the history of what happened and writing it up as dialogue um so the project was quite playful and we were allowed to be very playful in lots of ways um but one of the things about uh theater and and history is that theater is obviously a, a, a live and embodied practice and um that's quite different from uh p- poetry 
um, well, most poetry. And so I think um, the sort of liveness and the embodiedness of theatre was something I was interested in exploring in relation to history. So what does it mean um, for an actor to embody a real figure from the past um, and play out real situations from the past? Um, The other thing about witchcraft in particular was um, theatre and witchcraft both rely on the idea of belief um, belief is central to theatre and it's central to witchcraft. So I really wanted to explore um, what what that meant and what, what could be done with um, the fact that both witchcraft and theatre um, centre around belief. No, a bunch of really interesting things there. Um, thank you both for explaining. And I think laying out a bunch of things we'll then come back to as we progress. Um, but now that we've talked a little bit about the origins of the project and the title of the book, I'd love to ask about the subtitle, um, the focus on France from 1790 to 1940. Where did these parameters and this particular focus come from? Yeah, so this is my fault. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I um, I my, I did my PhD on quite a kind of you know in in a very typical twenty um, first century way. It was quite a limited topic, a kind of case study, and then it came out as a book and everything. And I was happy with it. It was quite focused in time and place. But what I had wanted to do my PhD on was um, witchcraft in France. Um, in this period from the French Revolution all the way through to the Second World War. And my um, supervisor very wisely, in fact, dissuaded me from doing that because it's far too big a topic. Um, uh, Because, I I mean, I think the thing that people, unless you're you're really in the area or you're a specialist, people don't necessarily realise is that um, the witchcraft trials that took place, you know, in Europe in in uh, in the kind of very late medieval and into the early modern period, um, when when those trials stopped, so in France they stopped effectively, they stopped in the 17th century. Although there are some kind of odd cases that do happen after that, um, it doesn't mean that people stop believing in witchcraft. And so um, there's actually a lot of really interesting material from this period long after um, the authorities stopped prosecuting witches. Um, There's a lot of material, and in fact, a lot of it is from criminal justice. So I spent um, much of the year that we were working on the project going to regional archives and looking at trial records and looking at police reports and things like this. Um, So um, I think at the moment, the running total for the project is like about 1,050 different uh, criminal cases where um, people were in some way or another arguing about witchcraft. Um, so none of those are witch trials because witchcraft is not a crime, but there are all sorts of um, other things that get bound up in witchcraft, um, like fraud cases and murders as well. So a lot of assaults and murders of witches, um, accused witches um, in the 19th century. Um, so it's 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 not a it, that's a topic that is I think I feel like it's not very well known among the general public compared to the early modern trials, but among specialists, you know, it's it's long been known that there's lots of this material, and in fact, even France has, has sometimes been recognised as a as a region that for whatever reason seems to have quite a lot of it compared um, to some other parts of Europe, um, and. Um, <laughs> 
I guess one of the things maybe we'll talk about this, Poppy. I feel like when we were doing the project, we talked about this a lot, and when we gave when we gave like presentations on it. But it's just a lot of material, isn't it? And one of the one of the kind of um, reasons that the creative approaches appealed a bit was to was in a sense to get a handle on this huge amount of material, like to find ways to navigate it that didn't just overwhelm um, overwhelm me and <laughs> yeah. And I think if I can just jump in, um, for me, um, one of the things that excited me was that I knew nothing about France um, in this time period and certainly didn't know anything about uh, witchcraft in France in this time period. So um, that was really nice. I could sort of come in fresh and not have any preconceptions, although, of course, I had sort of did have preconceptions about, you know, witchcraft and history, but I didn't know anything about this um, time period um, and location. And so that was very appealing to me. And it meant that um, it, it, it's also, it also was appealing because in terms of theatre, there have been plays about the early modern um, period in terms of witchcraft. Um, so there's obviously Arthur Miller's The Crucible, and um, I was really excited to look at this time period because it felt like new ground in terms of creative practice. So that was very enticing. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think just one other final thing I'd say about this. I mean, I feel I end up spending a lot of time thinking about how different witchcraft in this period is to witchcraft in the early modern trials because... That's the compar- That's the thing that most people tend to know more about. Um, so I do, and I do think that one of the things that we were trying to do a bit on the project was to draw attention to that. You know, to find ways to say that, um, in fact, witchcraft. That you know, the suspicion that living human beings could cause harm um, is is a belief or a or a suspicion. I have, I have my problems with the terminology of belief, but it, it's a it's an idea, if you like, a concept that is found in a great many societies and perhaps, in fact, perhaps all post-agricultural societies, although I don't think anthropologists necessarily agree on that, but, but, but the forms that it takes in different societies can be completely different. And the part of the kind of aim of the project, I guess, was to find ways to showcase that, although in some ways this is very similar to what people might know, from the early modern trials, in many ways, it was very different. Hmm. No, lots of great reasons there um, for focusing on this time period and place. So thank you for taking us through them. Um, most history books, and this is not a criticism, I love them, but most history books, uh, you are meant to read them. As the person who receives the book, buys the book, etc., your job is to sort of read it, learn some stuff, and then maybe it goes back on a shelf, right? It's a pretty straightforward, linear process. Your book is doing some more different things, um, which is part of the creativeness of it. So perhaps, Poppy, you could explain to us a bit how the book is structured and how you want readers to use and engage with it. Sure. So um, after an introduction uh, to the work, we have four uh, chapters um, and the the sort of themes of those chapters are fidelity, brevity, performance and empathy. And then within each of those chapters, we have um, a couple of case studies um, taken from the, the research. And then we have uh 
different approaches. We lay out different approaches that we used on the project um, to explore those themes. So, uh, for example, we have um, one section called Rights to Discover, um, another called Use the Whole Page. And so these different um, sections are sort of um, introducing the the reader to how we uh, how we creatively approached um, various case studies, and then at the end of each chapter, there is a list of um, exercises for the reader to try out. Um, so, what we really wanted uh, for this book was uh, the reader to maybe be a bit more active and engaged and inspired um, to try out uh, try out some of these exercises. Um, so the book is really, uh, we wanted it to be a toolkit for others um, because we had such a, a, a generative um, time on the project. We wanted our creative work to spark similar uh, creative work and collaborations and discoveries for other people so that's really our our hope for the book um, so hopefully some people have tried out the exercises but who knows um, I also do you remember Poppy that when we were writing it at one point we actually in the introduction we called it a grimoire you know like yeah. a book of spells so it was meant to be <laughs> Hands on practical guide. I just had a look to check whether it was still in there, and I think we must have <laughs> it out at some point. But um, but I think that is actually what it what it is. It, it is mm. encouraging yeah. to 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 do the practice and not just to kind of think about it. Yeah, some of the earlier drafts were were quite crazy. We had to tone it down a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to get into um some of the exercises, some of the actual experiences of it. Um, so to start off with, Poppy, you you mentioned of course um that you all tried these out, right? There were a whole bunch of things that you tried during the project. So given that you're not just kind of telling people to do this, you've also done it yourself. Um, do each of you maybe have a particular light bulb moment going through all of this that comes to mind? So this isn't actually in the, <laughs> this isn't actually one of the exercises, but um, something that was really uh, wonderful and and light bulby for me was towards the end of the project um I think it was during a time where Will was on leave um Anna and I started to work with each other's work so I would take one of Anna's poems and turn it into a theatrical scene and she would take one of my theatrical scenes and turn that into a poem. And that was just really exciting to me because it showed, I think, really clearly how we we both use the same um, bit of history, obviously, um, but turning it into a poem or, or a scene, um, these different forms, the same history could exist in these, in these different forms um, in really exciting ways but still retain retain the kind of core historical um story behind it and that was very exciting uh that was something that was really exciting for me on the project and it really showed how because at first when I started the project I maybe thought oh poetry and playwriting are very different um 
very different forms. I'm not sure how this collaboration might, might um, work. Um, but doing that towards the end of the project um, really showed me how um, it, it's possible for a playwright and a poet to collaborate in really interesting um, ways that also illuminate something um, about history. Mm. So that was exciting for me. That sounds very fun. Will, it have you was. got one? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I feel I'm so glad that Poppy is like framed it as the kind of it was like formal experimentation and like you know um, generic borrowing. Um, I th- we talk in the book about um, hermit crab forms, don't we? Because it's, it's about it's about borrowing the kind of structures or genres or um, you know the style and the forms that other other practices use and I think one that we the one that we tended to do when we presented this work to live audiences I still do this sometimes if I'm talking about the, the work to live audiences is is haiku um because it's quite a um it's quite a simple um technique you can do it live with, with an audience um, and people really enjoy it um and we did we did quite a lot of that on the project I, I think at one point Anna in fact, was trying to write a haiku for every single case, was she, for like a thousand cases? She did give up in the end, but that was the the idea. But what what people really enjoy about the, about, you know, um, the haiku exercise, the kind of exercise we tend to do is we'll we'll give people, and this is what we did on the project as well, we'll take like a, either a a short news story, um, or um, I have a, I have a document which kind of summarizes all the cases, which Poppy and Anna worked off as well um, and then you you try and take something which is already quite a short condensed piece of information and turn it into an even more condensed um, form such as the haiku which really doesn't give you a lot of space to to fit in information um, <clears throat> and um, you know I, I, I was talking at the start about I felt like poetry and as a short form you know short form poetry is really really interesting to thinking about the power of words because you're forcing yourself to, you know, to really concentrate uh, the meaning that you're using. And, and haiku was one of the ways that we did that on the project that I remember being really good fun um, uh, and also really difficult. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that bit in the book um, and it very much speaks to the point, Will, you mentioned earlier of um, poems almost being like spells. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly reading some of the haikus that made it into the book, it was like, okay, yeah, you could call that a spell really easily, um, which of course also, is interesting in this um, context. Poetry is really good at zooming in on just one small detail. And I think the haiku takes that to sort of an extreme. Um, so yeah, the haiku work was really, really fun. Um, mm. I enjoyed that a lot. I can I can see why. <laughs> um you, Poppy, you mentioned that uh, one of the four sections of the book is fidelity and uh, coming in as I'm deeply uncreative, as anyone who knows me would tell you, um, I'm coming more as a historian. And of course, that is always the concern, right? How do you deal with primary sources? What can you take from them? What can you not? And Will, this goes back to your point earlier as well about kind of annoyance that it's always assumed that uh, more creative forms are about making things up, right? Not necessarily nonfiction. So how do you approach and address the issue of accuracy of fidelity when dealing not just with a lot of sources and a lot of different kinds of sources, but when it's talking about 
witchcraft and magic that's already so kind of difficult to define. And then you add in the creative element. How, how do you think about accuracy in that context? Uh, with great difficulty. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think one of the things that we talked about a lot was this um, kind of issue of, well, you said you described it as the as sort of concern of history. Um, and we just would go back to basics and think about, well, what do we, you know, what what is true? What do we mean by accuracy? And I think one of the things that um, for me, I felt um, as the project went along and I felt more and more strongly was that history is already a creative act and it's not often seen that way, but it's already um, mediated and it's already creative. So part of my work on the project was to try and think about how history is already creative and actually how I can borrow sort of historical um techniques and methods um to use in my playwriting so we kind of decided that we weren't uh, in our creative work we weren't necessarily aiming for sort of historical certainty and what we were trying to do instead was um suggest um possibilities and kind of open up historical possibilities so I think that was where certainly I got to with it. Um, but it was really difficult. And then there was always the question of sort of, well, how much of this case study um, should we put into the creative work and how much should we hold back? And um yeah, it was really, really difficult. And there were a lot of ethical questions that Anna and I had around using um, real stories and real people's lives, because often the stories that we dealt with were um, quite distressing and probably the most terrible moment in someone's life. And then we questioned ourselves um, sort of turning those things into creative pieces for kind of entertainment and um so that there were a lot of um ethical questions that we had on the project as as well this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I don't know if that's at all answered your (laughs) difficult questions. (laughs) It does. Will, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, well, I mean, so I think this is, these are some thoughts that are probably not they're definitely not in the book, but I'm just thinking about this again now. And I do think that there are kind of there are two competing sets of issues around how historians think about our kind of fidelity to the past and being accurate. Um, and one of those is the kind of traceability question, let's call it that. And then the other is the actual um i don't know the actual stuff of the past itself so when i say the traceability question i mean i feel like there's a there is a commitment in most 
nonfiction historical writing to providing enough information so that a reader can can check you know a reader can like follow your trail backwards to see what it is that you're drawing on um and actually a lot of the things that we did in the project and that are in the book um have that traceability with them you know so they refer to the newspaper stories we're drawing on or they refer to um archival records that we're talking about they sometimes they provide details um biographical details about the people involved so that there is a kind of traceability which is baked into even the most um creative bits of work um, and that, that, that's one way of kind of saying, look, you can go and make your, you can make your own mind up about where this information is coming from, but it's actually quite different, isn't it? To, I suppose part of what your question is about is that how can we, how can you have uh, a form that is truthful or accurate when what we're dealing with, um, are cases where nobody, you know, everybody is, is in dispute about what really happened. Um, and that's a kind of, you know, it's not, it's not a problem that's unique to modern witchcraft, um, like the cases in the book, but it is, it is particularly acute, I, f- I feel, in some of this material, because um, as a historian, I think most historians who you talked about this kind of material would say, well, of course, we don't, we don't just accept, for instance, the police um, point of view or the prosecuting um, uh, authorities we, or the judge in court, you know, the way that they represent these cases is clearly um, a distortion of what people involved in the cases often felt was happening. Um, and the police, um, investigating authorities and medical experts, these kind of people who get called in, they they definitely, you know, they um, they kind of speak over if you like the people who are worried about witchcraft or who get accused of witchcraft indeed um and so in a sense the most of the material we have we know is a distortion already so when we're trying if you say you know we're trying to be accurate to what really happened we've already the first thing we've got to do is to think about the fact that maybe accuracy is not literally representing what our sources say but it's about speculating it's about imagining what these sources are getting wrong to start with. Mm. And that's before we even get to the question of, yeah, how do you accurately or faithfully represent something as nebulous and um, hard to pin down as witchcraft? Because I don't, I mean, Poppy will probably have thoughts on this from leaving the project, but I mean, I don't feel that over the course of the year, we man- it, what it allowed us to do was to say, more clearly what witchcraft really is. Witchcraft mm-hmm. is like, you know, it's like a kind of absence at the heart of the whole endeavor. And it, it almost felt that the more that we did to, tr- to try and kind of like speculatively map it out or kind of creatively represent it, the less certainty we had about what it actually consisted of. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's fair, Poppy. In a way that was quite useful though, because it allowed us to be a, a bit more free. So sort of the unknowability and the mystery of witchcraft was quite useful in terms of creative practice because poems and, and plays um, themselves are a little bit mysterious um, and sort of live in the air somehow, um, just as witchcraft kind of lives in the air. So that was quite... Um, yeah, that was quite useful in a way in that we didn't. Um, and also the fact that, um, as you say, our sources were kind of all uh, in dispute. That was also really useful, too, because it meant we couldn't actually get to the 
truth or a truth or any truth ourselves so um yeah that was just that was helpful yeah no that that makes a lot of sense and um, it's easier to be creative if there isn't kind of one definitive ending that you have to somehow come to right yeah yeah no that makes sense um I've asked you both kind of how you approach this, why you approach this, some of the kind of bigger picture things. But I'd love to, for the next few questions, get into kind of some of the exercises in a bit of detail to give our listeners an idea of when you say exercise, like what are some of the things that that can mean? So um, I will admit here, I've just picked ones that I particularly wanted to ask you about. Um, There's loads that we're not really going to touch on, but they are in the book for anyone curious. Um, So Picking one kind of at random, really, to ask about first, how and why might we think of writing as an ongoing process of thinking rather than we do all our thinking and then we write it down? Sure. So in terms of playwriting, uh, I guess what I write is always going to be a blueprint for other collaborators to come on board and turn it into a piece of theatre so it's quite easy for me to think about my playwriting as sort of a process rather than a final product and I think writing always whatever writing you do it always lives beyond you in some way Um, and I think on the project we thought a lot about sort of our writing living in in dialogue with our readers or our audience and so what things will they take from our work um, and sort of hoping that readers and audience would take things from our work that we don't expect them to. So I think for me, playwriting is always in process. It's always alive. It's always going to be reinterpreted by, by other people. Um, I think I always think about Picasso saying art is um, never finished. It's only abandoned so um that's always a useful thing for me to remember um just the fact that um yeah my playwriting and the book and its exercises will always kind of live live beyond us if that makes sense poppy you're just making me think that all of the writing projects you've finished have abandoned (laughs) there's there's always more to say will that's terrifying for a historian though to phrase it that way (laughs) i mean i do i think this also goes back to some of the discussion around you know i i recognize that for a lot of historians um some of the things that we did on the project are like well beyond the 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 limit of what they consider to be rigorous historical research practices um we used tarot to um you know craft narratives about things we didn't know um from the cases for instance so we used we used um you know fortune telling cards to make up what we couldn't find out about um some of the cases as one exercise just as as one example and those fictional things you know i started by saying that it doesn't have to be fictional i mean i recognize that for a lot of historians they don't a lot of historians do not want to include fictional fabulation in their work but I think that the part of the point about writing as process is that you might find it interesting or inspirational. You know, it might lead you to to ideas um, uh, about historical topics, even if you don't want to, you know, you don't want to go out there and publish something which is a 
you know, based on a tarot reading of a source where we don't know much about the context of the source, it, it's still, it's kind of generative. It, it, it's, um, it stimulates your thinking in a way. And that's, so I think that's part of this, this point about writing as process, because as a historian, I live in a, you know, if you like a scriptural economy where mostly what people care about is the big book that you're going to finish at some point about your topic, or they care about, you know, the high impact journal article perhaps, but that's, you know, I understand why we care about that. And I care about that stuff myself as well, but is that really all there is to being a historian? I feel like the, the stuff that we do along the way is also, you know, why we do it. And we do it because we enjoy it partly. Um, and um, there's all sorts of stuff in there about process, which I, I guess the book is trying to encourage people to enjoy and recognize that even if they don't see themselves as particularly creative historical writers. I think I'm um, just jumping about the the tarot and things like that and some of the um, playful things that we did. I think so the process of using the, the tarot cards and um, kind of exploring them gave me more of an understanding of sort of magic as an as an embodied practice and as a and as a practice that uses props and that kind of thing and so then I was able in my creative writing to write about the the tarot more more easily and with more knowledge and with more embodied knowledge and so I think one of the things that about the project is uh, we were writing through doing or after doing and I think that that um, that was really important we weren't just uh, sat reading um, historical books about magic Um, we were sort of doing things as well in really practical ways and that was really helpful then for our for Anna and I's um, creative writing I don't know if you found that too, Will. Well, yeah, I mean, so I think as a kind of, it's a nice little conclusion to the story in a sense, the the things that we did when we were playing with tarot, I then went on to take a load of the material that was um, kind of adjacent to the project and not really central to the project um, and turn it into a research piece on, on tarot and how tarot is used in this period, um, which is... Um, yeah. So I mean, like, so that's what I mean by process in the sense mm-hmm. playing does actually have, well, that's not a very creative piece. Like it's an, I think it's a nice piece about the use of the 19th century, but it's not a, you know, it's not a creative um, mm-hmm. output. Yeah. And just to, so we, we worked a little bit with some contemporary pagans, which was really wonderful and was really important for us to do that. And so um, in terms of that practical process, again, I remember particularly in terms of theatre, um, we used some objects and props with them. And then it was really useful to hear about how they used um, objects and props in their practice. And um, for me, thinking about how theatre uses objects and props um, in similar ways, that was really, that was also really, really useful and exciting so again it was just really great on the project to be able to do these practical um practical things um that was that was a really important part of the process Mm. i'd love to ask you about um another one of the exercises that uh 
is sat down with books, I grant you, but <laughs> still creative. I imagine some scissors were involved um, in moving things around. Um, I thought this one was fascinating, to be honest. It's, it's probably the one that I would be most likely to try immediately. I have all sorts of ideas. Um, in history, we weigh up facts and opinions all the time. I mean, you could argue that that's essentially what we do at our core. Uh, but in this exercise, can you talk us through how you brought in space on a page, different ways that poetry and playwriting use space, which you pointed out in the book, historians do not think of. And fair enough, I completely take that point. So how could we maybe bring that more into historical practice to do the work that we do already? I think this is, I really enjoyed this. Um, and the thing to say about it is um, that it's really, really easy. And I found very enjoyable and very fun to play <laughs> around with the layout of the page in order to, to represent your information in ways that are more complex than, you know, most historical writing that I do, you know, for journal submissions or for monographs or whatever is, you know, it's a body of text and then there might be footnotes below the line or end notes at the end of the chapter. And that's pretty much, you know, the page layout. So it's really easy to do this um, in your own kind of, in the comfort of your own working environment. I just, one thing I will note about it is that it's actually surprisingly hard to then get that published in any kind of like academic publishing context, certainly. So I've published a few things since the project, which use the page in different ways. And we've quite often ended up having to basically just take an image of the page mm, yeah. and then include it in the publication because it's just, you know, academic publishers, they have formatting conventions and page yeah. layout conventions, which I don't um, necessarily fully understand but it's there are actually like very serious barriers to just doing whatever we want it turns out well, the, the good thing is with this exercise I think it highlights that even if the end result looks like a normal journal article there are ways to get there to clarify your thinking that don't have to be quite so boring yeah so and I think the what so I think the probably the example you're referring to is the um I did a thing with uh, with a source and a story about, um, I think it's about a murder case um, where someone was killed for being, um, uh, for, it was killed because someone else thought they were a witch. And um, I used the, the full kind of breadth of the page to lay out the information that's that's presented in the case and that I was, I was bringing to bear on the case as well from kind of very certain on one side of the page to much less certain on, on the other side of the page so that visually it um, it represents that kind of uncertainty about um, what actually happened in the case. Um, and yeah, I found that a really interesting way to do that. It's so much nicer than having to be like, oh, perhaps this happened. We're more sure that this happened. You know, it feels very wordy in a sense to, to keep having to remind the reader about how much certainty we have about particular information. And also... And this is a, you know, it's one of the joys of, of looking at um, poetry that uses similar techniques. It's, it's also, it like really draws attention to the specific words. It's quite, it's a very different reading experience to looking at dense blocks of text, which is what I spend most of my time doing when I'm, you know, reading history writing. It's also exciting for me as a, a theatre person to think um about how to uh, format my plays in non-traditional ways. So to think more about visual storytelling on the page and 
playing around with varying various font sizes um, or what does it mean um, for a player to use sort of photos and use gaps and spaces so um, that was something that was really interesting for me to think about in terms of in terms of playwriting. Mm. Yeah no I think both of those examples um, speak to kind of things we don't we overlook often and yet have more potential. Um, similarly, footnotes, sometimes by design, are meant to be mostly looked over. But as the book discusses, um, there are more creative possibilities. So Poppy, perhaps you could tell us some ways in which footnotes could be more creatively used? Yeah, so I think this came out um, of, I guess, a concern or question that Anna and I had around um our work and whether whether we should include um sort of citations as to um where the poem or um play theatrical scene had had come from you know should our poems and plays have footnotes should we should we cite the real history behind our creative work and should we be really foregrounding that source material and including it for our readers to kind of have a bit more knowledge about, um, you know, what's real in our work and what's invented. Um, So that kind of became more of a meditation on how might footnotes be put to to a creative use. And um, Anna sort of wrote, wrote a poem where... I think there was um, sort of there were more footnotes and longer footnotes than the, than the actual poem itself, which was much shorter. So, um, and 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 in that poem, her um, her sort of footnotes sort of spoke back to the poem and um, sort of subverted things in the poem, and um, that was uh, that was very exciting for us us to kind of think about and explore actually can the footnote be a creative tool and how might that work in in performance in the theatre if something is is performed do we have sort of a a character who is kind of a footnote person who comes and corrects things um, or adds things to the scene Um, so thinking about um, how footnotes might sort of add add to a poem and a play or subvert things that we were doing in our poetry and playwriting was um, quite exciting for us to to explore a bit sort of um, Mm -hmm. moving away from the traditional use of of footnoting which Mm -hmm. was where we started (laughs) (laughs) but got somewhere much more interesting by the end Um, Will is there anything you'd like to add about footnotes? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it, footnotes are such a good example, aren't they, of something that on on the surface, I feel like there's a kind of common sense approach to footnoting that we teach, you know, we teach undergraduate students and we teach in graduate school and we all pretend that we're doing, which is that, you know, it's just a functional, it's a functional part of writing academic history to make sure that you footnote 
um, key claims, you know, so that people can follow up the sources and whatever. But I don't know if you've read that Anthony Grafton book about footnote, but like footnotes are, you know, that's an incredibly interesting and um, in some ways quite strange history in itself, because they are, at the end of the day, they're there on the page, like encouraging you to navigate the page in different ways. And I know that um, one of Anna's, yeah, one of Anna's interests in that, and that poem in the book is, is a really good example of this, is, you know, it's it's encouraging the reader to kind of like shuttle backwards and forwards between different bits. So it is a much more... Yeah, playful and strange relationship with the text than we than we sometimes assume um, from um, kind of like standard historical writing. Mm-hmm. And the, the, I guess the, the important thing about that is that is it's already there in all historical writing. It's just that we don't necessarily always pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Um, my next, the next exercise I'd like to ask about, in some ways, does the opposite of the footnoting one. Instead of taking something that's always there um, but not necessarily talked about and elevating it to conversation um, there's an exercise about erasing sources which we generally have and we don't usually take them out so what does it mean to erase the sources and what effect can it have sure so um, this um, exercise sort of comes from quite a long tradition of erasure poetry it's sometimes I think called found poetry and um, for us, what we do is we take a typed out source, um, which obviously has already been, is quite condensed in itself. And then what we do is um, you sort of scribble out um, and erase um, certain words, certain sentences, certain phrases. You, you can come up with rules about what you want to erase. Um, so like erase all the names in the text or... Um, erase all the words with um, the letter W um, or you can just sort of do it as the mood takes you and um, after you've erased certain things you're left with a with a new text and I think um, we found that this can reveal certain things about the sources that are not obvious at first but that might be historically interesting and so other other ideas come to the surface when you erase a text um and that um yeah and we just found that we would discover things like oh the the word we would discover a certain word was used loads of times in the text and what might that reveal um oh yeah so it it was really interesting in terms of what what was brought to the surface what was already there in the text but that we might have missed um yeah I don't know if you have anything else to add to that Will yeah I mean I I think I feel that it is quite iconoclastic for a historian to talk about erasing sources um it is quite it runs counter to how historians often think that they think about their material like the idea of deliberately obscuring things um from primary source material sounds like it's absolutely the opposite of what historians are trying to do we're trying to get as much material as possible and we're trying to like present it faithfully to our reader um and i i personally i mean i found that very generative on the project very interesting and very provocative to think with because it does turn out in a sense to be to be a way of handling primary sources 
that um, that that fosters a lot of different ways of thinking. And I remember there were two poems that were really made a big mark on me. I think I think Anna might have introduced both of them to us on the project. Um, one is Tracy Smith's Declaration, which is um, an erasure poem with the Declaration of Independence, which takes away some of the, the words and leaves leaves a poem that's about. Um, um, yeah, transatlantic slavery, and I think really makes it makes it clear that the, you know, there's a whole a whole set of things going on there. And then um, M. Basie Phillips' Zong, which is another poem, which take it takes the records of a insurance case. I think from the 1780s, is it? Um, uh, it was an insurance case where a, a captain had deliberately scuttled a ship filled with um, enslaved uh, Africans who drowned in the sea. Um, and both of those poems kind of use taking things away and then also cutting up or rearranging in the case of Zong to to reveal um, yeah to reveal messages or voices that we that, that aren't as obvious in the whole text but that you that you can I think there is a kind of it's like doing sculpture isn't it you kind of carve away the wood to reveal the sculpture that was inside the piece of wood when you started um, and of course when we're doing that we're not actually erasing or destroying the original source material and any other historian or anyone else who's interested can go and look at the original source material, but it does still feel kind of dangerous or yeah, counterintuitive, like I said, to, to do that with our sources as historians. Um, but um, I would recommend it. Yeah, there's some good exercises in the book about mm-hmm. erasing sources and I, they're the ones I try and encourage people to do quite often. Oh, interesting. Um, the final exercise I'd like to ask about is the technique of actioning and what this can reveal. Um, Poppy, maybe you would start? Sure. So this is something from the theatre world. <laughs> um, so this is a re- actioning is a is a rehearsal technique and um, not all theatre directors use it. Um, so it takes quite a long time and... Um, it's when uh, so a group of um, actors and a director would sit around a table in rehearsal with the text of a play and then you would work through line by line what um, the intention under each line of dialogue is and it's meant to sort of help um, actors be much clearer about what their character is doing and what the motivation of their character is and it's meant to make everything um, super clear for actors to be able to kind of um, to perform a play and um, what I think is interesting about actioning is it um, it sort of works um, it, it sort of works with the play under the play so it works out what characters are actually um, doing and saying to each other so one character might say shut the door um, but the line of dialogue shut the door um, it might be a command it might be an instruction it might be a threat it might be a flirtation so um, the practice of actioning the technique of actioning reveals sort of what is going on under the scene so the scene under the scene and I think um the reason I thought it would be useful um, for this witchcraft project is um, witchcraft is all about um, intent, um, just like actioning is working out um, the intention of a character. So we sort of used actioning on on the project to look at the cases that we had and sort of the, the dialogue that we had in various cases and to think about 
um, think about sort of the tactics that um, these figures from the past were were kind of might be um, might be doing to each other and what was really going on um, in some of these cases. Uh, so yeah, that was something that we that we did. Um, yeah, for a for a few cases, I think. Hmm. Very cool. Thank you for explaining that. Um, Will, is there anything you'd like to add about actioning? I feel like this is definitely, there are quite a few techniques in the book like this which, where a historian might look at it and say, oh, okay, so all you're saying is like, oh, you know, work out what people's motives were or speculate about their motives. And I do think that there is like a lot of overlap between some of the techniques that we propose and things that historians already do. But one of the things that I loved about working with Poppy and with Anna, of course, was that it's, it really makes those practices visible. And we've talked about that a few times already, I guess, in the interview, but it, but it, 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 I feel like it does force historians to come to terms with the fact that what we often engage in are forms of creative practice. So, of mm. course, people who are, you know, when, we, when historians speculate about motive or intention where we don't have, you know, where we never have excellent information, do we, about why people do, did the things they, they did in the past, when, when we're doing that, um, we want it to be rigorous. We want to, you know, prove to our reader that we've got good reasons for, for suggesting that people were behaving in the way that they did. But we are nonetheless doing something which is, at the end of the day, quite speculative and imaginative and creative. Mm. Mm. No, that's a lovely point, I think, um, to mostly end on. Uh, but I'd love to ask one final question, if you don't mind kind of zooming out from the individual exercises back to the big picture. Um, the book is thankfully available. People can go try all of these exercises should they so choose. So is there anything you each might be working on now or looking to work on next that you'd like to preview for us? So I have... I have more things coming out about witchcraft that just keep coming i'm sorry um uh but i there's, there's going to be a big more kind of academic monograph style book which is looking at um a lot of material about witchcraft from france in this period um which i'm hoping to finish quite soon that's the big thing that i'm really focused on at the moment so um i have a couple of plays still wanting to be written from the project um <laughs> Uh, there was a figure called Talazak who I really loved and I really want to write a play about him. But at the moment, I have a seven-week-old baby. So the thing I'm doing right now is trying to keep a tiny human alive, um, <laughs> which feels quite a creative use of my time anyway. So that's my current project. And certainly a very important one. Um, yes. So thank you both for sharing um, those previews with us. And of course, congratulations, Poppy, for the seven week old human. Thank you. Um, the book we've been discussing to our listeners, a reminder, is titled Creative Histories of Witchcraft, France, 1790 to 1940, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Will, Poppy, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks thank for you having so me. much, Miranda. <laughs>